There's this strong global intuition that when we sin, we damage the world and we need to sacrifice something and suffer something to make up for it. Often now we medicalize uh, our sins, we psychologize our sins, and while medical and psychological angles of vision are important to understand why we do what we do, at some point the Bible says we're wicked, we're actually morally wrong, and we deserve to suffer and finally die for those. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. All right, with me in conversation, he's an academic, he's a professor at Crandall University, and he's also a speaker and a really theologian, John Stackhouse. Thanks for making the time. Good to talk to you again, David. John, you travel all around the world. Do you have a favorite country to speak and, and do work in that's not Canada? Yeah, I, I mean, I love the United States. My family moved to the United States when I was a teenager. Uh, all of my family of origin are American citizens. My sister's married American, so did my brother. My parents are buried in Texas. So America's my second home. I speak fluent American and uh, glad, glad to go down <laughs> and uh, share with my American cousins. But uh, I probably have had more joy uh, in Australia than any place else. Uh, hmm. There's an excellent group called uh, the Centre for Public Christianity in Sydney, Australia. And they do as good a job as anybody anywhere in presenting an evangelical face to a secular or pluralistic public. So CPX is very, very strong. I encourage your listeners to look for them online, CPX in Australia. Uh, I've worked with the Scots College in Sydney, a very fine Christian K-12 through boys' school. And uh, with Morling College, the Baptist Seminary at Macquarie University in Sydney. So I've got good friends there. I've been down to Sydney um, several times. Look forward to going back sometime. They're really pretty close cousins to us Canadians. You know, we, we think of our American friends down south as being our immediate neighbors. But culturally, the Aussies are closer to us in many ways than the Americans are. So uh, a lot of fun dealing with them. We just got to pick up a rugby ball and we'll be right with them. Well, that's it. And then Australian rules football. I mean, that's a man's sport for sure. I mean, I, I played uh, North American football, but I, I really like the pads. You know, I like hockey, but I like strapping on the pads because I've played hockey on lake ice, which is pretty hard without much pads. And boy, you hit the deck. Mm. You feel it. So <laughs> those those Aussies are a tough bunch. Yeah, they sure are. Wow. Well, we are uh, coming up on the Easter season once again. And just you know, for someone like yourself who's been a Christian as long as you have and uh, you've worked uh, as a professional Christian, uh, how do you try to generate fresh insight, fresh takeaways on this monumental time in our calendar? Thanks for that really good question, David. I, I think that for me, as somebody who's trained in the history of the church, that opens up 2,000 years and a whole globe's worth of Christian reflection. So for me, for instance, the, the Anglican tradition, uh, which is uh, not one I grew up in, but is one that is uh, rich with excellent words in Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. And whether you're an Anglican or not, I commend that to you. It's a, it's a wonderful collection of very tightly written praise and theology to God. Uh, I appreciate the poetry of contemporary poets. Uh, my favorite is Lucy Shaw, who is still writing poetry in her 90s. 
Lucy's a transplanted Brit and Canadian and American, but she now lives in uh, Bellingham, Washington State. Uh, so Lucy, L-U-C-I, Shaw, uh, just a wonderful poet. And uh, Scott Cairns, the American poet, C-A-I-R-N-S, as well as the great uh, Christian poets through the centuries, because every, almost it seems, every good Christian poet writes about the big hol- holidays, you know, the holy days, and they can often give us a fresh look. And uh, from time to time, I'll watch one of two videos. I'll watch uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, as uh, punishing as it is to watch. Uh, I think, frankly, it's uh, a powerful and largely accurate portrayal of what goes on. Uh, I know that a lot of critics hated it, but I think they hate Mel Gibson, um, and understandably so, but the movie's uh, pretty powerful. And I also like a movie that's done in animation called The Miracle Maker, and it's the story of Jesus that's done in a couple kinds of animation. One is a sort of stop-motion claymation-type style, and you'd think that doesn't sound very moving, but it really is well done. Uh, And then it will alter into a two-dimensional cartoon-type imagery for some of the more uh, unusual episodes, visions and dreams and the temptation of Jesus at the hands of Satan and so on. So I find The Miracle Maker, which is kind of a dumb title, but it's a really good movie. Uh, It's available, I think, uh, online pretty easily. Uh, All of those I find to be aids to devotion. And even just attending church, as I did this past week in my local Anglican church, St. George's, here in Moncton, where this is a kind of traditional church. So it's a beautiful um, 19th, early 20th century Gothic interior. But in the last couple of weeks before Easter, the liturgical cloths and vestments turned to ox blood. It's a quite extraordinary color. You almost never see it. Just those two weeks before Easter, this deep, dark red, it's this heavy color. And just going into church immediately makes you start thinking uh, the way you should. So I find this combination of the visual and the verbal, the cinematic, and even the theological really helpful uh, to make sure that I come at Lent and uh, Holy Week with a fresh heart. Hmm. Okay, that's really helpful, really uh, giving us a bit of an inside look into your life with some of those things you shared. I'm interested with the blood. I just want to go there for a second. Uh, You talked about that going into your Anglican church. Billy Graham, uh, it's said that he, in reflection on his life, if he could go back, he would have preached on the cross and the blood more. I don't think I know enough about the blood. Uh, What would you say about the significance of the blood in relation to Easter? Well, I think that uh, I'd like to know what, what Billy Graham meant by that. I've studied Billy Graham. I've, I've published an academic article about uh, conversion in the uh, thinking of Billy Graham. I do think that Tom Wright, the, the great um, British New Testament scholar, had it right when he tried to write his own little uh, apologetic. Tom's written a, some, several good popular books, but in his own uh, popular book, whose name escapes me now, but it's, it's surprised by something. It's, it's sort of a takeoff of C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. Tom properly helps the modern reader understand the career of Jesus by telling the Old Testament story first. I did the same thing in my own more recent book, Can I Believe Christianity for the Hesitant? Because I don't think you can understand Jesus' career, and particularly not Jesus' suffering and death for us, 
without understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system and what God was trying to teach the world through Israel's uh, sacrificial cult uh, in the tabernacle and then later the temple. Probably 15 or so, maybe more uh, years ago, Dave, I, I wrote a piece for the Toronto Globe and Mail uh, for an Easter weekend called What's So Good About Bloody Good Friday? And I tried to explain to a Canadian audience rapidly losing touch with its Christian heritage, and of course now it's even more out of touch with the Christian heritage, why the Christian religion thinks it makes sense for this person to be suffering and dying on a cross. Like, what's up with that? Why does anybody have to die? I mean, when I forgive people, nobody has to die. When God forgives the world... Somebody has to die. What's going on there? And I think if we're going to talk about the blood of Jesus, we have to assume that our audience has no idea what we're talking about, and they may think, actually, that we're being pretty creepy. So we're going to have to take our time if we're going to talk about the blood of Jesus and explain why the God-man really does have to shed his blood for the forgiveness of the world. So it's all with the context, and that's uh, imperative to really understand the significance of that blood that was shed. Well, absolutely. I think that, you see, in, in traditional religions around the world, and I've taught world religions off and on for 30 years, in traditional religions around the world, it's actually quite common to find the idea that when you do wrong things, when you break a taboo, when you offend the gods, when you damage the universe, you need to pay for your sins. It's called atonement. And you have to go to the shaman or the priest or the guru and find out, now, here's what I did. What do I need to do to make things right? And often it's sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your own well-being. You might have to sacrifice some pain. You might have to sacrifice uh, some of your domestic goods. You might have to sacrifice an animal. There's this strong global intuition that when we sin, we damage the world and we need to sacrifice something and suffer something to make up for it. So that idea in many ways is lost in our contemporary Canadian society. Often now we medicalize uh, our sins, we psychologize our sins, and while medical and psychological angles of vision are important to understand why we do what we do, at some point, the Bible says we're wicked. We're actually morally wrong, and we've done wicked things, and we deserve to suffer and finally die for those. Jesus, then, as the human who can represent us, but as the God who can take on the sins of the whole world, substitutes for us. And this idea of substitutionary atonement is the great good news, that I can go to hell and suffer my, for my sins, or I can let Jesus do it for me. And the great good news is that God loves the world so much that he's willing to suffer for us in the person of Jesus. So it's a, it's a tremendous idea. And, and this isn't, again, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important here. This isn't a big, nasty, vengeful father God punching his son to death because he needs to punch somebody, like some terrible, abusive father coming home drunk on a Friday night. This is the one God in three persons suffering, I would say, triply for the sins of the world. 
Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, the Son of God as Jesus. But God the Father also suffers to see his son suffer, the way I, as a father of three, would suffer to see my son suffer. And the Holy Spirit, who loves Jesus, I can sort of imagine him fluttering around in agony as he has to watch one of his favorite people uh, suffer and die and has to let him do it. Can strengthen him, but he can't save him because Jesus voluntarily is suffering and dying in our place. It really is a fabulous story, but it's a very strange story. So it has to be told carefully in order for each of us to understand it and to embrace it. And in your one of your recent books, Can God Be Trusted?, you talk about this idea of within the crucifixion enabling us to go from suffering to joy. Uh, how would you explain that that transformation happens? Well, there's so much joy on the other side of the cross. In fact, in one of the New Testament books, the epistle or the letter to the Hebrews, says that Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So Jesus went to the cross so that on the other side of it, he could have the joy of pleasing his father and of reconciling the human race to himself as God. God really does love us, and he hates to be estranged from us, the way I hate to be estranged from my loved ones, from a relative or a friend. It, it, it eats at you, right? It's, it's a burden. It, it's, a, it's like a, like a, a wound. And, and God, even though it's our fault, God still misses us. He, he wants to be in communion with us. And so Jesus reaches out these hands of love to us and says, look, I've done for you what you really can't do for yourself. And if you'll grasp my hands, I will bring you home. I will bring you to the Father. And, and this is so joyful, I think, every time, Jesus says, every time somebody repents, uh, all of heaven celebrates. This is what God loves to do, is to bring creation back to himself, and especially men and women, boys and girls, as we reconnect with God and take our place properly in God's family. It it's, seems to be one of God's great joys. And of course, it's a great joy for us, the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of reconciliation with our maker, the joy of looking forward to a certain hope of everlasting life in unimaginable comfort and splendor. Uh, there's a lot to get excited about. Uh, but I'm wondering how you would go about putting a spotlight on this incredible news, especially considering where we've been over this past year in Canada. Just, I mean, we're talking today and this morning, a police officer, another police officer slain in Quebec. Uh, The funeral was just recently for the ones in Edmonton and uh, there was an Innisfil in Ontario. There's been so much suffering. Does that make the Jesus statement, I am the resurrection, just again, that much more powerful? The idea that we will live again, the idea that uh, there is a fountain of youth, the idea that there is an elixir of immortality. I mean, these stories go back in various cultures and back and back. This wonderful hope that someday we can find the answer to eternal life. And Christians say, you know, that's what we've been talking about for 2,000 years. You know, we've been trying to tell you that our Lord is the resurrection and the life, that if you will give your life to the God who made you, he will remake you, and he will give you a life beyond that first death, a life that will never end. 
So you don't have to watch exciting movies and fantasize about finding immortality through transhumanism or through occult spells or through some other kind of science fiction or fantasy. It's real. Immortality can be yours. You can die and then live forever. It's only because Christianity has dominated Canadian culture for the last 500 years that we don't hear this message as being as startling and as confrontational as it is. Because this is what we're offering. And if Christians are wrong about this, if we Christians are offering eternal life and we're wrong about this, this is the worst kind of fraud there is. We're giving people the worst kind of bad news. We're suckering them in and, and, and taking their money and taking their attention and taking their energy for a false promise, the worst kind of false promise. But if it's true, it's the very best kind. And this is something I think I would like us to sharpen a lot more, sharpen that point for our Canadian neighbors, if they'll let us do that, to say, look, either Christianity is great good news or it's the biggest fraud in human history because it's the biggest religion in the world. And if it's founded on a lie, it's terrible. It's a terrible lie. We, we need to think of something else. It's a little bit like talking about prayer, David. You know, people are used to talking about prayer in Canada. No big deal. But Frankly, if you're sitting in a room by yourself and you think you're talking to the maker of the universe, either that's fabulous good news or you're psychotic. Hmm. There's no in between, right? You're not you're not meditating, you're not musing, you're not you're not reciting your mantra to focus. You're either having a conversation, particularly if you make a Christian, if you're having a conversation with Jesus who died two thousand years ago, if you think he's alive and can hear you. What are you going to do? Have cocktails with Julius Caesar? You know, you're going to go play racquetball with Napoleon? Like, th- this is either fabulously good news or Christians need serious help. And I'm trying to help my audiences recover the strangeness of Christianity so we feel its force again. The resurrection, Paul says, our faith hinges on that. That's what you're saying right now. Uh, what do you think, if in, in your finite mind was planned up in glory among the Trinity before the creation of the world to comprehend and consider like what you're talking about, this unlikely story? Well, my informed hunch, you're, you're right, I have a finite mind. That's a very nice way of putting that, by the way. Other people usually refer to my mind in less polite terms. But <laughs> but the, the in the finitude of my mind, I think that for God to get what God wants, namely human beings who freely love God and who have learned to love God and godliness so much, so thoroughly and so soundly that we will never sin. Because that's the hope, right, of the world to come, is that we have lost our appetite for sin and we are so committed to uh, righteousness that we will never sin again. Otherwise, we just start the whole thing again. And, you know, the whole cycle repeats. And my students ask me that sometimes. What's to keep this from happening again? Somebody goes to the New Jerusalem and then they, then they uh, you know, they sin again and start the whole thing. Well, the difference will be Adam and Eve weren't perfect. Adam and Eve were innocent, but they weren't perfect. They weren't mature. They were just starting out. And what God needs is for us to grow up to be mature 
so that we no longer are interested in sin. And there doesn't seem to be a way for God to create instantly mature free will beings like that. Uh, So I, I think that God was not surprised by what happened in the Garden of Eden. He jolly well knew what was going to happen. He made the world and he made us in it so that when sin came, which it surely would, God was ready for it. And this is what I think the Bible says. When before the foundation of the world, God knew that the lamb would have to be slain. Before the foundation of the world, God had decreed what would happen. This is the plan of God to produce a family and a tribe, a nation for himself out of the redeemed of the world. It's a long, unimaginably complicated, slow, painful process. But life is a long, slow, painful process that results in really good things. And so I think that's the big story that we see in little in our own lives. When it comes to Easter for a Christian, it is the biggest moment of the year, but essentially every day of the year we're celebrating Easter. But how do you keep that momentum going forward? In the Book of Common Prayer I mentioned earlier, uh, there is a daily prayer that is a quotation from Scripture. Blessed be our God and Father who, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when I think of Ephesians 2, where Paul says, God has made us alive in Jesus, he has raised us up with Jesus, and he has seated us in the heavenlies with Jesus. That's a pretty good way to start your day, you know, to put things in perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay, this big thing that was bugging me all night, not quite such a big thing now when I start looking at it in the actual. This isn't fantasy. This isn't Disney. this This is the truth of my life. This is the most basic truth of my life, that God has made me alive in Christ. He has raised me with Christ. He's seated me in the heavenlies with Christ. Now, it doesn't, doesn't feel like I'm seated in the heavenlies. It feels like I'm stuck in my apartment with my drab little life. But what God assures me is that the really big questions of my life have been answered. Where am I going to go? You're going to come home with me. Am I going to live forever? Yes, you are. Are my sins forgiven? Yep, they have been. Do I have a purpose in my life? Yes, you do. I love you, and I'm going to give you good stuff to do. All those big questions that philosophers and and novelists and poets and songwriters are constantly wondering about the Bible has answered for me. So what do you want me to do? I want you to do your daily work. Go to work. Okay. Yes, sir. Give us today our daily bread and help us to forgive others as we want to be forgiven too. Keep us from being taken aside by the devil and let's put your kingdom first. Jesus says, let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I don't want to think that every day I leave these times of prayer floating on some kind of golden cloud of joy and excitement as I go and talk to another (laughs) class of students, half of whom don't even want to be there, right? I mean, every life has its drudgery. Every life has its difficulty. And some lives are really difficult. But what's so wonderful is that God says, this all matters to me. This is all good stuff. You, you carry on with that. I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to give you power for that. And when I 
think that you've done all that you need to do, I'm going to call you home. And it's all going to be so much better after that. Well, and this is what we celebrate, the epitome of what God has done for us. John Stackhouse, appreciate your time and your contribution to uh, the kingdom around the world. You can find out more information on John, his books, his blogging, johnstackhouse.com. Thank you for this. Great to talk to you, David. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. We will return again next week and we'll keep focusing in on Easter as we will be right in the midst of the height of the season. My guest is someone who will share a transformational story from the power of the cross. You're not going to want to miss that. And if you want to double back on any episode from the archive, we've got a great list of shows today. You can find those anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection between faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.